Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello, and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of our podcast. Today, we're in for a really interesting conversation with Jessica Langbaum, who is the co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative at Banner Health. And we're going to be discussing genetics, genetic disclosures, and Alzheimer's disease. You know, Janice, this is a really common question that I run into invariably if someone in your family receives a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, or if you've had multiple family members, the question kind of comes to, am I going to get this too? It's such a huge concern. And just this week, this very question came up in one of our sessions. And it's especially relevant today with the accessibility of this testing. Like you can get do-it-yourself testing kits. And these things used to only be available through scientific research. And I think we really need to talk about how this might impact a person if they got this news. So I'm really thankful that Dr. Langbaum is here to talk with us today and answer questions that many people are asking, or at least they're, they've thought about it, especially family members and caregivers. They're wondering, should I do this? Well, again, I'm so excited to have Dr. Langbaum with us today. Welcome, Dr. Langbaum. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. So we start off our podcast the same way each time, trying to learn a little bit more about the person that we're speaking to. So could you tell us about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community? Oh, certainly. Um, I've always been interested um, in the brain um, and in you know memory and thinking processes, and I was really drawn to studying more impaired uh, memory and thinking ability um, when I was an undergraduate and decided to uh, go to graduate school. I thought I wanted to. Um, be a clinical neuropsychologist, but I actually found my way into epidemiology, psychiatric epidemiology, when I was in graduate school. And that really um, became my passion, studying uh, interventions that could delay the onset of memory and thinking problems in older adults. Personally, though, I, like many um, other people, have a family history of Alzheimer's disease in my family. Um, when I was in um, getting my PhD, my grandfather uh, was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. So I was, you know, certainly watching firsthand as he declined and progressed to um, Alzheimer's dementia. Um, he was actually a patient at Banner Alzheimer's Institute and, and received great care. You know, but I was certainly saw firsthand also how my grandmother um, had to take care of him and help him with his activities of daily life and, and saw the toll that it took not only on my grandmother, but also um, my mother and her siblings, who, of course, now became worried about, well, will they develop Alzheimer's disease? So uh, it's something I've dedicated my career to. I've been with Banner Alzheimer's Institute now for 
I think 14 years, uh, actually this month. So it's been a remarkable journey being here today and, and being at Banner Alzheimer's Institute. And I consider myself very, very fortunate to be able to work with such a great team of individuals. Wow, what an interesting story. And it seems so often that uh, people who are invested and passionate about careers in Alzheimer's disease often have that sort of family connection that, that sort of spurred it or, or set the fire, if you will, for them. So I thank you for sharing that story with us. Uh, maybe we can just start at the beginning here and talk about genetics and Alzheimer's disease because there is a genetic connection um, and there's a few different genes that can contribute to this. Could you help us understand better? Certainly. So genetics plays a role in, in Alzheimer's disease. And, and there actually are really two forms um, that we should talk about, about Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's a very rare form that is caused by a genetic mutation. And this form of Alzheimer's disease we call um, autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease or familial Alzheimer's disease. And this is a um, form of the disease that accounts for less than 1% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease worldwide. So it's actually really rare. Um, but when it does occur, it has this you know, typical hereditary pattern of generation after generation after generation developing Alzheimer's disease, typically at a very young age. So with symptoms of mild cognitive impairment, starting um, perhaps in a person, you know, when they're in their 40s, full-blown dementia in their 50s. And again, this is caused by a genetic mutation in one of three genes. And this genetic mutation, if the parent has, if a parent has this genetic mutation, they have a 50-50 chance of, of passing the mutated gene onto their biological child. And so that's where you get this hereditary pattern. But that form of Alzheimer's disease, like I said, is really rare and it strikes at very young ages. Um, most of us think about Alzheimer's disease occurring in later life, um, you know, after a person's 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and there are a number of genes uh, that increase a person's risk, a susceptibility for developing the disease, but they aren't causal. So let me go back to that rare form of Alzheimer's disease, that familial autosomal dominant disease. If you carry that genetic mutation, you will with basically 100% certainty, develop Alzheimer's disease. The form of Alzheimer's disease that occurs in later life that we think that we call late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's disease, or what most people just think of as Alzheimer's disease, there are genetic risk factors, but none of these will with 100% certainty um, cause Alzheimer's disease. They only increase your risk. And one gene in particular, what we call the APOE gene, and that stands for apolipoprotein E, is the one that's sort of best established. And what I mean by best established, it's been replicated in, I can't even tell you how many studies, we've known about it for decades. And it's really the gene that exerts the, the strongest effect. And this APOE gene, it comes, there's three types or alleles in, in our genetic language. And those are APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4. 
and everybody gets a copy um, of their ApoE gene from mom and one copy from dad. And just depending on which of these um, copies you get, there are you know ultimately six different combinations that you can have from E2E2s to E4E4s and everything in between. And it's that E4 form of the ApoE gene that increases a person's susceptibility or risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in later life. But I just wanna stress here again, it's just increasing your susceptibility, increasing your risk, really age. Age is the biggest risk factor for anyone to develop Alzheimer's disease. As we get older, we're all at risk. ApoE just adds to that. Dr. Langbaum, thank you so much for giving us that explanation and untangling all of that for us. You know, today we're in this self-diagnosing society. I mean, we can search the internet um, for symptoms that we might have. We can go to the local drugstore or go online and purchase a genetic kit to find out if I carry the gene. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how it's um, impacted people when they, they try these testing kits? Yeah, that's, you're making a great point, right? Somebody can easily go to online um, and search this information. They can buy a testing kit at their local drugstore or um, on the internet uh, because they say, oh my goodness, um, I'm starting to experience some memory and thinking problems or my parent was just diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. What does this mean for me? I wanna stress again, you know, this, this APOE gene this ApoE4 uh, form of the ApoE gene is just a risk factor. It can't tell you who will or who will not develop symptoms, who will develop Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, you know, people without the risk factor, this, this form of ApoE still develop Alzheimer's disease, still develop mild cognitive impairment, and you can have the form and, and still be healthy and, and not develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's certainly not this like, test that's like your crystal ball that will unlock everything for you and tell you with certainty whether you will or won't develop the disease. It's just a risk factor. Just like, you know, high blood pressure is a risk factor, um, you know, for, for having a heart attack or a stroke, right? There are things that are out there that increase your risk, but, but don't necessarily tell you um, everything about your health and the future of your health. But you know, you you raised a point of the things that you should consider before, if you're going to go purchase one of these tests and say, oh, wouldn't this be neat? I should know. Like, hey, family, let's all do this for holiday gifts for one another because we're we're curious about the male pattern baldness in our family. Mm -hmm. um, there are other things that um, really folks should take into consideration before deciding whether they do or don't want to learn their genetic susceptibility, their ApoE results. And one of which is family considerations, right? Genetics are hereditary. So if you happen to learn that you have two copies of that ApoE4 gene, well, that means your, your biological siblings at least have one copy because both of your, you know, your, your parents, well, I shouldn't say they, they are likely to have one copy of the ApoE4 gene. I shouldn't say definitely. They are likely to have it. It doesn't mean they will, your siblings will definitely have it, but your biological children, right? If I, as a mom now know that I have two copies of ApoE4, that means my biological children have at least one copy. So you're not only learning something about yourself, 
but you're learning something um, or likelihood of learning something about your biological relatives. And think about, would you wanna share this information with your siblings, with your children, other blood relatives? Would you wanna share it with your, with your spouse or partner? Um, for some people, uh, there's also emotional considerations, right? There can be positive feelings of knowledge about empowerment, but some people might feel uh, negative, have experienced negative reactions, maybe feel slightly depressed or anxious or even guilty. Perhaps they're the family member who learned that they don't carry any copies of the APOE gene, uh, of the E4 variant of the APOE gene, but all the rest of your siblings have two copies. Maybe you feel a little guilty that you've escaped something. So there's just, you know, some emotional considerations that people should think about. They're not right or wrong, they're just considerations. And then lastly, we always like to make sure that people think about the um, financial and insurance implications about before learning their APOE results. So in the United States, we have what we call the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, and this is called GINA for short. And Yes, it protects against genetic discrimination for things like health insurance and employment. If you learn your 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 genetic formation, you can't um, you you can't lose your health insurance or, or be fired from this if you work for a large employer. But there are a lot of things that Gina doesn't cover, such as life insurance or long term care insurance policies or disability policies, and the list is is rather lengthy. So we always say. If you are on the fence about and you're thinking about purchasing one of these um, insurance policies, maybe do it before you're about to um, learn your results so that if you're asked whether you do or don't know this information on an insurance policy application, you can answer truthfully because you can't lie on those things. So again, we don't know yet of instances where people have, where insurance policies are asking for this, but we keep hearing it's on the horizon um, as more and more people use direct-to-consumer genetic testing services to learn something about their, their genetics for, for their risk of Alzheimer's disease or, or other conditions. Wow, Dr. Langbaum, it seems like there's so much that we need to think through. It's not as simple as receiving um, a letter in the mail and opening it up or clicking on a link to find out um, what our genetic status is, there, there's much broader implications of that knowledge. I wonder too, how might this impact a person's own perspective of their cognitive abilities? That's a great question. And that's an, um, a, a, you know, there was a study many years ago, it was a very small study, but it um, looked at people's perceptions of their memory and thinking ability, as well as their actual performance on memory and thinking tests. And they studied people who did and did not learn their APOE results. And they found in this very small study, you know, that people perform didn't, um, that learning this results negatively impact both how they thought about their memory and thinking ability and how they actually performed. Um, and so we were really interested in this because, um, you know, that's a that, that if that were the case, that would be terrible, especially as more and more people are learning this information on a daily basis. And there are a lot of research studies out there that are requiring people to learn something about their genetic risk in order to participate in a research study. There are 
um, a lot of clinical trials out there for people with certain genetic susceptibility markers. And so we really wanted to unpack this. And we have some research underway where the, um, is to really take a deeper dive into it. And what I can say is at least at our initial look of the data is that we're not able to replicate that negative impact. So um, what that means is initially, we aren't able to um, say that when you learn your your APOE results that you will all of a sudden start thinking, not only is my memory really bad, but also, you know, you start performing really bad on mem tests of memory and thinking ability. We're not able to replicate that. You know, certainly more research is needed, but at least right now we think it's it's safe and well tolerated and it's safe and well tolerated i think um, the reason we're not able to replicate is because all of our research is always done in people who one have sought out this information who've sought out their apoe test results but also they learned their apoe results when speaking with a genetic counselor who helped them unpack all of this information who helped them understand what the apoe gene is, what it does and doesn't tell us, you know, that this is just a susceptibility factor. It's not a crystal ball. And there are lots of things in our life that increase, um, can increase or decrease a person's risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Can you tell us a little bit more about genetic counseling and what a session might be like? Yeah, you know, in the genetic counseling field is, um, you know, really, um, adapting oh, quite a lot because people are, um, you know, certainly going and learning um, using these direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Um, genetic counselors are a really specialized field. Not only do they have training in medicine and genetics, but they also have training in, in counseling and sort of, you know, how to unpack uh, it, all this information and deliver it in a warm and caring way. So typically what a genetic counselor will do especially in, in this instances where people have already given their genetic sample and, and the results are, are you know right there ready and waiting is that the counselor will sit down with a person and talk with them about the gene that it, um, they the person could learn about what it does and doesn't doesn't tell them about their risk of developing alzheimer's disease all of the, you know, walk through the considerations that I mentioned, you know, the emotional considerations, the family considerations, the financial and insurance um, and employment considerations. But also start to talk about with the, with the individual, you know, all the possible results that the person could learn, all the genetic, you know, combinations that the person could learn about. They might even take a family history and walk through what a family tree could look like for that individual and, and what um, the inheritance might mean um, if the person had you know, two copies of the ApoE4. This is all done before the genetic counselor even opens the envelope with the person's genetic results. So the person has time to think about this information. The genetic counselor will pause and say, okay, you know, with these things in mind, would you like me to open up the envelope and reveal your results? Mind you, through this entire conversation, the genetic counselor also doesn't know the person's results. They are also blind. So they're really having a, just an open, honest, candid conversation. And it's at that moment in time that the person can say, yes, I want to learn my APOE result, or maybe it's uh, genetic testing for another gene. Um, or you know what? No, I'd like to pause. I can come back to this um, information at another time. So assuming then the person um, says, yes, I'd like to learn my information, 
the genetic counselor will open the envelope, reveal the results, and then again, remind the person, okay, here's your results. These are your actual results. This is what they mean for your risk or susceptibility for Alzheimer's disease. And again, here's some information about other risk factors that things that might modify your risk, factors that increase your risk or decrease. Again, remember being age is the biggest risk factor out there, but there's also things like family history, a person's biological sex, education, uh, cardiovascular health, et cetera. So it's really a, a conversation. You know, this used to take place in person, <laughs> you know, in a, in a medical office, but the oncology field really moved us forward in, in Alzheimer's disease. In fact, we were wrapping up a study right now where um, participants were at a, in a physician's office, but they were speaking with a genetic counselor who was in another city. And they were speaking with the genetic counselor either by telephone or video conferencing. And frankly, this is because there's not enough genetic counselors out there to meet the demands. So we're making sure that information, um, if it's delivered in different modalities, that is by video conference or telephone, that um, people understand the information, they still feel a connection. But telemedicine, I think due to COVID has really moved us um, far along. And then we're also looking at um, ways to incorporate genetic counseling, all the, all the um, richness of a genetic counseling session into what we call a, um, you know, an online learning module. So this is different than, oh goodness, I did my direct to consumer genetic testing company, you know, kit. I clicked on their link to the website, I log in and here's just a website, a one page information, a really long page that I have to scroll through and read a lot of information. Um, we're trying to make interactive content with um, video modules and click here to learn more, help me, you know, exit, I need to speak with a healthcare provider, ways to make genetic counseling services more accessible to the broader community, recognizing that not everybody can go into a, um, a genetic counseling office and meet with a person face-to-face. -face. That's so interesting. It seems almost like the genetic counselor is kind of your friend helping you through this moment where I could uh, envision that moment where you want to open the envelope and get your results. And this counselor just kind of sits with you and helps you through this emotionally charged moment and, and helps you think logically about what do these results mean for me? You've said it better than I could ever, than I could ever have. Thank you. Yes. I think they are your friend. And I think, you know, people tell me very, people who have, um, you know, lots of education tell me they've opened up, you know, their website with their genetic results and have just been inundated with this long web page of information. And it's so dense and they've gotten like lost. Like, what does this result mean for me? Were these data points taken from people like me, and they really want to speak to somebody. And I think that genetic counselor is so important and helpful. We're not saying don't learn your information, but I'm saying if you do want to learn your genetic information, think about leveraging the resources of a genetic counselor to help you understand and impact and integrate it into your life. That's so good. And Dr. Langbaum, I was just thinking, you know, looking back over your 14 years with Banner Alzheimer's Institute, which congratulations on that. Who would have ever thought that the accessibility of this testing would be as widespread and easily available as it is today? And 
I don't know that we all even imagined that we would also have to make sure that we had genetic counseling accessible for people. You're exactly right. When I started um, my research career, we were very much in the don't learn this information. There's nothing you, you know, there's no reason to learn this information because there's nothing you can do about it. It's not, it, sh it shouldn't change how you view your your susceptibility for developing the disease. You sh everybody should do healthy life, incorporate a healthy lifestyle. Everybody should eat right and exercise. And uh, there's no reason to learn it. There's no medication or no research studies available for people with, based on their um, genetic um, markers. So why learn it? And that changed very rapidly. And I can only imagine that in the future, we might even have medications that are targeted for people based on their um, genetic markers for the disease. And so I see this as really, you know, forward thinking as the future that uh, we have to learn how to deliver this information in ways that are best for um, patients. And um, I think genetic counselors are really um, the key to all of this for us. Dr. Langbaum, I know you are um, extremely invested and involved in um, clinical trials around Alzheimer's disease, and even more specifically with genetics. Earlier, you mentioned that genetics disclosure is sometimes uh, a component of participation in clinical trials. Could you explain that a little more? Oh, happy to. Thanks for the question. Um, there are some st uh, research studies out there for people who are healthy. Um, we call these prevention trials, and we're looking to see if maybe a, a, a investigational treatment can delay the onset of um, symptoms related to Alzheimer's disease. And some of these trials ask a person um, are only open to people with certain genetic markers for certain, you know, for instance, it's only open to people who have two copies of the ApoE4 gene. We had a study like that called the, the generation program a few years ago. So we uh, required people to learn their ApoE results. There are other studies out there that are maybe not limited to people who have a genetic susceptibility, but maybe um, we're asking people if they would like to learn their APOE results as part of screening for the trial because the medication may have different um, side effects based on your APOE results. So those are offered for people to learn optionally. And so these are things that people, you know, as they're thinking about participating in a clinical trial, they may be you might be presented with the opportunity to learn your um, genetic results as part of your enrollment process. You might be able to learn some of your brain imaging results, uh, your biomarker, what we call biomarker results that might also increase your susceptibility or risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And through each of these, you know, we're trying to um, make sure that people have all the information to make an informed and educated decision about their participation. Um, and of course, then studying the impact of disclosure on people's um, emotional, psychological, and, and well-being, as well as on their memory and thinking ability, as I mentioned earlier. I can imagine a future again um, that some studies also, you know, some of these studies might lead to treatments that might be um, earmarked for people with certain genetic markers. So um, it's really an exploding field, if you will, if you will, um, for people. And genetics is really at the at the forefront of this. 
I can just hear your passion and I know your dedication around research. And if someone asked you, you were just having a conversation and they, they were considering getting involved in research and they said, why, why research? Um, what would you say? I'd say research is, you know, what really enables is, is going to enable us to find a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't happen without research. And I believe that there's a research study for everybody out there. It doesn't mean that you have to participate in a clinical trial of an investigational medication, but there are online studies where you can do memory and thinking tests to help us um, develop new tools to detect the disease. There are um, studies that might have you um, do a brain scan so we can look at changes over time in healthy individuals as they age. You know, and of course there are clinical trials, but there's something out there for everybody. And that's really, uh, I think never been more evident than during COVID when it's allowed us to identify so many vaccines in a very short amount of time. It was because of all the research volunteers out there. Um, so imagine if we could do that for Alzheimer's disease. So I always encourage people to think about participating in a research study. Find one that is interesting to you, that meets your um, time commitment. Certainly, you might only want to participate in a very short study. That's okay, but that would be so helpful um, to the community. In fact, actually finding research volunteers is one of the biggest obstacles that researchers face. So we created a program at Banner Alzheimer's Institute called the Alzheimer's Prevention Registry. It's a simple website that somebody can go to and enter in their email address, their year of birth, their zip code, and answer a few other questions. And then not only do they receive emails with um, great content um, and, and resources, but also they receive email notifications when there are study opportunities that might be a good fit for them. I call it, it's like a research um, dating service, if you will. Doesn't mean you have to go on that date or match with that research study, but at least you're notified. And if it's a good fit for you, you can just click to learn more, or you can say, nope, this isn't a good fit, but hey, it's a good fit for my neighbor or my sister might be interested and you can forward it along. And uh, we've been blown away. We have over 350,000 people who have signed up um, since its launch uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, and we're always looking for new um, members so that we can help um, accelerate progress in Alzheimer's research. So that program, again, is the Alzheimer's Prevention Registry. And you can visit the website at www.end, so that's E-N-D-A-L-Z, now now.org and allsnow.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Langbaum. You've made so many interesting points today. I wonder if you could help us kind of sum it up and give us your final thought when it comes to genetics and genetic disclosures in Alzheimer's disease. You know, we've come a long way in understanding Alzheimer's disease and the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. And I think that if somebody wants to learn their genetic susceptibility for developing Alzheimer's disease, if they want to learn their APOE results, certainly for many people, they find that empowering. I encourage people to do that in partnership with a healthcare provider, with a genetic counselor or their, their physician to help them walk through this information, to think, about the, to think about the considerations, the family considerations, the emotional considerations and the financial and insurance implications before opening that 
envelope before learning those results so that you can um, be better prepared for what the results might mean and how to integrate those into your life. For many, knowledge is power. For some, they might not want to learn that information, and that's okay. This is a very personal choice, and people should think about doing what's right for them and only them. Today, our conversation has been with Dr. Jessica Langbaum, who is the co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative with Banner Health. We appreciate you helping untangle genetics, genetic disclosures, and Alzheimer's disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Langbaum. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you, Heather and Janice. This has been such a fun conversation, and I can't wait to join you again on a future podcast episode. Well, hey, and thank you, Heather, for another enlightening conversation. And thank you to our wonderful listeners. We're so glad that you have joined us and we thank you for subscribing. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, please do subscribe to Dementia Untangled and share this podcast. Check out our website, banneralz.org, for additional resources, education, and research opportunities. We do appreciate your feedback, and we invite you to join the conversation by emailing us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com. And finally, thanks again for joining us today. We're looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn more about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com.